Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 56. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Uptograph. And we're uh, continuing a mini-series going through David Pye's The Nature and Art of Workmanship, going chapter by chapter, walking through each piece of his big argument to try to show the value of this work. Uh, so we're taking it bite by bite. Uh, you know, the last chapter was one of his biggest chapters, and this chapter is one of his shortest chapters. It's yeah. really quite condensed, quite small to make basically one simple point. Yeah. So this chapter is entitled, um, this is chapter five, The Designer's Power to Communicate His Intentions. That kind of summarizes what the chapter is. It, it's really about um, establishing the practical limits of design, right? How far can you take design when it comes to uh, an object you want to make, even in, in mass production? Like how far can design bring you to produce exactly what you envision? So uh, he he begins this chapter uh, talking about, the. he says, the last chapter kind of raises a question. How far is it possible for words, figures, and drawings to prescribe the qualities of a work of art so that if the designer's directions are faithfully obeyed, the qualities automatically arrive? So if you can picture, let's say you have a, a beautiful painting and you want someone to be able to reproduce that. Uh, you know, he's saying, how far, like, can you be instructive enough to someone else to reproduce that work of art, that mm -hmm. painting, that chair, that table? Um, how far can design take you? Right. I, I've. It's kind of funny to, to latch onto this, but I've for a while been interested in the word prescription mm. to prescript. <laughs> that is funny. To write, yeah, right. Uh, to write down beforehand. Right. So ahead of doing something, say, I'm going to now write this down. This is what's going to happen. You can do this and then this and then this. So that is, that's design. That's thinking it through saying, this is what exactly what I want to have happen. So that's, this is the question then. So what are the limits to that? I right. mean, how much can you actually prescribe yeah. write down ahead of time? This is what the way it has to be. And how much of it is actually really contingent upon that moment and of the actual creation. That's yeah. the fundamental question that he's not only looking at in this chapter, but he's kind of exploring more broadly in this kind of these few chapters. He's looking at what workmanship particularly contributes to the the uh, creation process. Yeah, and it's it's interesting if ever you've um, let's say you've gone to to demonstrate woodworking to a group, or you know we've been to events and things like that where we will outline a presentation we want to do. Let's say we want to show people how to use a wooden-bodied plane. And we'll, we'll do an outline. Usually what we present ends up looking almost nothing like the outline because of the interactions with the people and just different things, different dynamics come into play. So, you know, our end goal is achieved, but we've gone about it a different way than we envisioned. And so what Pi's getting at in this chapter is, he's, he says... Is it really necessary that anything should be left to the workman's discretion? And now this is this is kind of a rhetorical question. So he he looks at what design can do here. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, design takes into account the properties of matter. And he says that there are some that we don't really care about. He says like thermal conductivity. If we're woodworkers, we don't really care about, you know, how much heat your blanket chest, you know, conducts, mm -hmm. right? Um, but he says that there are, there are physical properties that we care about. 
size, shape, reflectance, color, translucency. And he talks about translucency a little bit later. Um, Namely in glass. Right, exactly. So, so if, you're, if you're using a material and you're making, you're crafting something with it, these are important things to consider. But he's saying, you know, how far can you take design so that you guarantee a result, right? And is it necessary that, that the artisan or the maker has any free reign at all in the final outcome? Or should you prescribe something so thoroughly that you are guaranteed what the result will look like? Well, and these are these properties he's talking about. He says they're objective, defined, and measurable. Mm -hmm. So he's really saying how much control yep. can the designer have? Yeah. What really is uh, what is possible with that? So uh, this is what he wants to kind of explore and, and think about in this chapter, uh, because he is both a designer and a craftsman at the same time. He's doing, he makes things and he designs things. And actually, that's, that's the case for a lot of woodworkers today, that they are both the designer and they are the craftsman at the same time, doing both, wearing both hats, as it were. So it's not just, we're not only talking about you know mass production, saying, you know, are these people determining what those people do? That's not actually the question. It's saying, does this role, how much uh, power does this one role have over the other role? So if I'm the designer and I write it all down and make these detailed plans, how much of that is actually going to determine the outcome and how much yeah. of it really has to be determined, uh, left at my discretion at the right. bench to actually execute. Yeah, the process is what makes that outcome, right. right? So like we've talked about, we have, you know, in the room you happen to be sitting in, I don't know where you are, uh, whoever's listening. Uh, if you look around, like how how many different textures do you pick up? You know, do you have, is it a wood floor? Is it a linoleum floor? Is it is it completely smooth? Does it have some texture? Maybe you're in a room where you have like a vinyl floor that has texture worked into it. Now that texture is a design element, right? It's designed to have something that appeals to a more uh, rustic look, right? So what, what Pi's talking about here is he says, we could map out for production, let's say of, of flooring or like a tabletop. We could map out a tabletop that includes all the little dips and dives of a, a handmade table. We could, we could do that. We could design something in such detail that it would have those textures. But he's saying that's like, it becomes a, a fool's errand. It becomes uh, not worth the time and effort and energy to reproduce that. So what, what happens is you take a step back and you start uh, doing shapes and very simple repeating patterns. So you look across your floor of your, um, your vinyl flooring and it's the same patterns repeated over and over. It's just that each one is a, um, it, it's meant to look a little random, but each one is is the same as the other one. So it introduces some texture, but it's the same texture repeated over and over and over because it is uh, such, it's so time intensive to make something with as much randomness as you get in a handmade object. So design only goes so far in bringing in those factors that give a handmade object its beauty. Yeah, and so just to to be you know really clear, I think about what he's trying to say. He's saying he says in principle, it is possible for a designer to prescribe quantitatively all the properties. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're talking about let's say you have uh, a, as you referred to Mike, a tabletop with all these 
dips and dives from a hand plane, if you said, I love that look, mm -hmm. I'm a designer, I love that look, and I really want to replicate that. Yeah. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to design a tabletop that has those kind of qualities, mm -hmm. like seemingly random dips and dives yeah. and subtle variations by one thousandth of an inch yeah. here and there. I'm going to plug them into my CNC. And I'm, and I'm going to figure this all out and I'm going to draw drawings. I'm going to say this place and these coordinates is going to dip down this much. And then over here, there's going to be this little tiny scratch mark. And I want it to be this wide for this long. And it's going to taper in, in width as, it, you know, you could, you could theoretically prescribe all that. Mm -hmm. And obviously he's saying, he's not advocating for that. And he's, he's saying, but he's, he's saying that no one would actually do that because we all know the limitations of that. We know that this is silly. Why would you even do that? So it, if you would say, well, okay, but none of that's important. The scale of design needs to stop somewhere practically. Like right. you can give the dimensions right. and say, this is the kind of wood and make sure that this one's pretty smooth and this mm -hmm. side doesn't need to be as smooth, but that's pretty much the practical limitation to the design. Um, but the surface texture, he's saying it's not practical for the, the, um, the designer to, uh, de lay out a detailed prescription of the surface quality that really is in the nature of the case. It has to be left up to the workman. Yeah. Yeah, one of the examples he gives, which I think is a good one, this one's going to stick in my head. <clears throat> He's talking about, like, if you imagine, like, this this excellent vintage of wine, right, the year and the vineyard, and it's really good. He says, in principle, you could analyze the chemistry of that and just reproduce it by recombining those elements together and the, the perfect balance, as long as you analyze it with enough detail. And he says, like, in theory, this is possible, but in practice, things are different. And And I would agree with that. I think... Um, you know, this is going beyond his argument, but there are certain intangible things that maybe you can't measure uh, chemically, but that offer something beyond what um, the kind of analysis he's talking about. Like you can't just have a million bottles of that artificially produced wine that tastes exactly and perfectly like a really good vintage. There's something missing in that. Yeah. And I would actually say, so this is, again, as you're saying, this is a little bit off of what he's saying, but I do think it's interesting to highlight and to remind us here as we're going through this book that what Pi is concerned with in this book is the objective, the defined, the measurable. He really is talking about design and the aesthetics and how to lay this out, how to talk about it in a very scientific, uh, careful way uh, that's, that's very technical. Hmm. So, when we're talking about uh, hand tools, when we're talking about the surface quality, he's saying, oh, no, I'm talking about objective, uh, you know, uh, these these properties of matter and how mm -hmm. they are. But it's interesting to me because he's talking about the, the value of diversity of surfaces and how workmanship of risk can do this effectively. Right. Great. And he's yeah. saying, let's exclude any intangible values. Right. Right, <laughs> like, right, right, right. From, from his discussion, his particular technical discussion, I'd say, great. So it's interesting that this book written in 1968, fast forward, as of this recording, this is 2023, and we have all this 3D printing and a lot of technologies um, that, you know, two years from now, five years from now, we're going to have different technologies doing all sorts of things. But it's interesting to me to think about uh, say 3D printing, being able to scan a surface that has texture, mm -hmm. replicate it, and to print it out with plastic, you know, yep. so you'd have 50,000 copies. Yeah. yeah, you'd have all these surfaces. I mean, I was looking at, you can, you know, get these um, 3D printed replications of master painters. 
Van Gogh. Right. Right. With the texture, with the, texture, the brushstrokes. All the, yeah. If you've seen these these paintings in person, you realize that, you know, when you were in art class as a kid, the the, the photograph of the painting actually doesn't have anything to do yeah. with a Van Gogh painting. It is three-dimensional. Right. It's three-dimensional. Yeah. And so there are 3D printed uh, replications of these paintings. So they're a lot more realistic to what he actually did when he was making those brushstrokes. Mm. Now that's a replication. But if you were to, uh, you know, have some... AI design or someone say, I'm just going to make these textures, whether it's just a, a cool looking texture or it's trying to do something else. And then you were to print that material or pr print it into a different sort of material. It's interesting to me to think about the non-tangible values and to say, what is the meaning in that? Yeah. Like what if, if you're trying to replicate a hand plane surface and so you design what that would look like, and let's just say it's really successful. It actually... Mm -hmm. It if actually you close your eyes. It feels it just like it convinces yeah. woodworkers that yeah. this is actually must, must be a hand plane surface. It's interesting for me to think about the non tangible side of that. Why would you do that? Yeah. Why would why, what would inspire a person to want something to look like it was made by a person, right. even if it wasn't? Now that's not Pi's concern. Right. Uh, he's really talking about no. I'm talking about beauty and objective properties of matter, and we need diversity. Mm -hmm. And I'm just back here saying, and what's behind that? Yeah, why? Why is, do we? Why do we need? Why do we exactly. value university? <laughs> so these are these are the deeper questions, right? <laughs> you always turn these up when you look really closely at a book like this one. Um, so he says, "There's nothing abstruse about practic practicability." So um, he's saying, "There's only so far design can take you, and it becomes impracticable." Like if you were, if you wanted to make, I, I go back to a blanket chest. You wanted to build a blanket chest, but the the plans were so exacting about everything. And like, so you need to put a 1 16th inch chamfer at a 40 degree angle to the face of the blanket chest. Not 45. Not 45, 40, 40 degree. degree. And, and you had to do this and you like so precise that it, um, you know, the result is that the surface texture is exactly predictable and, you know, it you would pull your hair out because that's no fun to work to plans that are so exact that it leaves you no room, uh, no wiggle room. And so he says, um, he's talking about designing for mass production. And so he says, that kind of design for mass production would slow everything to a standstill. So that's why in mass production, they step back. They say, make it smooth, make it, you know, they talk about like the the contractors fathom, right? You know, so it's made around the materials. It's eight feet tall. It's four feet wide. It's it's a set a set dimensions, set texture, and that's how you mass produce stuff. Which is why mass produce stuff tends to all look the same. Um, you can't bring in those design elements into mass production in the same way that they just naturally have when you make them by hand. Yeah, he says there's a strong incentive to design only in terms of shapes, mm -hmm. which are easy to communicate yep. uh, to the standardized component. So if you're saying, the designer is saying, hey, listen, this is what I want you to make, just do this, uh, then the designer is gonna say, well, I really gotta have to stick with stuff that I, I need to stick within the realm of what can be communicated. Yep. And this whole workmanship of risks thing, I don't have control over that. And if we're gonna mass produce stuff, we need to, of course, control the uh, the outcome, the production. So we need to design with that in mind that we, we, we need to minimize the workmanship of risk because we can't have everything looking, you know, either dependent on, you know, that particular uh, person on the line and what they're doing that day and how right. successful it is, um, 
or you know the just the natural variation we need to have uh, steady output of regular items and therefore we'll design so that we can control that outcome yeah so what he he describes um that outcome that very predictable very rigid very utilitarian kind of product of mass production he he calls that impoverishment he says that we're basically um we're in aesthetic poverty mm-hmm. <laughs> with our mass-produced objects. And I think that's that's a powerful way of putting it. I mean, that's about as, as strong as, as Pi words his argument here, saying, look at what we're losing by mass-producing everything so that it all looks the same. Yeah, later on in the book, he actually says that uh, this is dangerous mm. for us, which yeah. we'll get to. Uh, but it's a fascinating... Uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's starting so technical and saying, I'm just trying to be yeah. you know, precise about this. And then he starts using this like morally charged language of impoverishment, this language of um, danger and how this is, you know, not good for us. Uh, I, I do think it's interesting. You know, I remember reading, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Glenn Adamson and his his critique of Pi. And, he, you know, he says, you know, Pi is so stuffy, but there are these moments that it kind of, he lets himself... Uh, lets himself go for a little bit, and he says, "This huh. is not good for our, for us as people." And we, you yeah. know, and and I think he's right that there are these moments in in this, this book, you do see um, the the sort of sense of um, maybe a little bit of nostalgia, maybe a little of despair, a little bit of you know appreciating the goodness of these things uh, that maybe aren't so tangible, maybe right. aren't so you know objective, defined, and measurable, uh, but he. He intuits, I think, what a lot of people intuit that there is something actually really, truly beautiful mm-hmm. about this that goes beyond, um, you know, quantifiable properties right. of matter. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So uh, he he kind of sums up this chapter by saying, um, talking about mass-produced objects, he says, in which, as a rule, the slight free modifications of shape and surface quality, which mark the workmanship of risk, are quite unattainable and indeed unthinkable. And then he talks about other cases that he will get to later in which um, maybe to a degree it is attainable um, in mass production, but they're very specific cases. Like a glass mason jar or something that a glass jar is mass produced, but the nature of the materials, because of the translucency, and you can see the inside of the glass, which is not smooth. It's kind of wavy. It's kind of wavy. So it introduces this diversity, this uh, variation in the, in the, te- in the texture and the, the way the light hits it. So it's it has a little bit of that quality he's talking about, even though it's a completely mass-produced object. That's one of the exceptions. In woodworking, I don't think there are as many uh, possibilities for that kind of thing. Right. But Yeah. And so then at this point, he says, uh, check out the plates, you know, beginning on page 101. If you don't have this book, if you haven't picked this up to follow along with us, we do sell it in our store, uh, David Pye's The Nature and Art of Workmanship. Um, yeah, you can find that at uh, mortisontenandmag.com. If you want to follow along, uh, we've had great fun with this, and we've we've been hearing from a yeah, lot of people. We're getting emails from people yeah. like, I am so excited about this. I've been <clears throat> I've read the book, but you know this has been so helpful to hear you guys walk through it slowly and explain it, and things are connecting. And so it's awesome to hear that feedback. Uh, if that's been your experience as well, send us an email because it's it's pretty uh, awesome to hear the feedback from you all. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, so thank you for listening to uh, this episode of the Mortis, Mortis and Tenon podcast. 
Uh, if you haven't already, you can su- subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, um, wherever. We're, we're kind of everywhere. Uh, so again, if you're enjoying this podcast, if you're enjoying this delve into Pi, uh, or if you have any comments or questions, you can leave them below.